What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, I think this is going to be a fun episode today because we're going to dig deep into your psychology. We're going to find out what makes you tick as a professional athlete. Now, of course, you've told us about your incredible uh, volleyball athlete, you know, athletic career. Um, gave it up to pursue journalism, just a huge sacrifice by you. And I'm sure some of your family members are are questioning (laughs) why you left the riches and potential uh, Olympic gold on the table to do this. But uh, certainly I'm glad you did because now you're here with me. Um, Here's what I want to find out about you, Michael. Could you have handled being Michael Jordan's teammate? Because in episode seven and eight of The Last Dance over the weekend, we got... Probably our best look yet at what it was like to play with and play against Michael Jordan. Um, you know, you you might get punched in the face uh, like Steve Kerr and, and some of Jordan's other teammates. You might be repeatedly harassed with demeaning language like Scott Burrell. Um, you might be told that you don't get the ball passed to you uh, like Bill Cartwright. Um, so definitely some, some serious challenges. Now, on the other hand, you might get to bathe in champagne regularly, right? You might get the championship rings. You might become kind of a cult hero, uh, by virtue of, of proximity to Jordan, the biggest star on the planet at the time. So I just want to open it up, Michael. How would your life have worked had you, Michael Pina, been on the 1990s Chicago Bulls, would you have gotten along with MJ? Would he have taken you under his wing? Would you have challenged him? Would you have gotten yourself traded? Would you have walked off the job? How are you responding to this ruthless competitor version of Michael Jordan that we saw who's chomping on cigars and waxing about how trash talk should work and also you know, bringing himself to tears when he's talking about the importance of competition in that very memorable scene? How are you handling all of it? I mean, I'm someone who can barely breathe when they're watching big time basketball on television Uh sometimes. So uh, to be up close and personal with Jordan, you know, in practice, a spittle flying in my face, if he's calling me names, I probably would not respond well, I got to be honest, I think there would be sleepless nights, there would be uh, frequent visits to a psychiatrist, there would be um, just me really wishing that I was not in the situation that I was in. And uh, so I, I, I can understand where some of these guys are coming from who really struggled. And we, you know, in the doc, they don't really talk about too many of the guys who were not able to deal with Jordan's bullying and his approach to leadership, which I thought was pretty interesting. I mean, Steve Kerr, who needed to resort to physical violence to kind of break through and earn Jordan's respect, uh, he talks about it as, you know, one of the better things that he's ever done. Like, that's just not something I could ever <laughs> relate to. I, I, yeah, let me stop you right there, because Steve Kerr is a master communicator. He's an incredible yeah. writer, used to read him online, I think at Yahoo. He's an incredible commentator. He's great with the media as a coach. His version of being punched by Michael Jordan was that it was the best thing that ever happened to him because he stood up <laughs> for himself and it brought them yeah. closer together. Now, that's either his true feelings or it's what he believes is the right way to spin a very challenging and difficult situation where there's a lot at stake or it's both. What do you think? Is he spinning or does he, has he convinced himself of his own narrative? I, I actually never even deeply considered the possibility that he was spinning this. I just kind of took it in his face value because he is an otherwise honest, uh, forthcoming individual but i just i just can't relate to it i mean when we talk about like styles of leadership and michael jordan's success uh you know we kind of align his bullying nature as a prerequisite to just his his success and the championships um i i just personally am more i think relate i i I would Better relate, I think, more to like Tim Duncan's style of leadership or Steph Curry's style of leadership, where 
you know, you can just talk to me like a human being if I mess up and I'll, I'll figure it out. Uh, you know, I just, I, I, I'm a much more calm person and I don't really respond well to screaming and uh, that sort of form of motivation. Uh, so, yeah, I... I it's really difficult to even put myself in these shoes because, like I said, Michael, I would probably it, just melt into a puddle. It sounds like you're sort of that classic, you know, army recruit from the movie who gets two <laughs> weeks into boot camp and is just like, this isn't for me. I want to go back to, like, technical college or something like that. Um, are you are you quitting uh, during training camp? Are you demanding a trade? Um, like, what are you doing, like, actually in that well, moment? How uh, is this playing out? Well, it's like I want to be along for the ride and I want to win a championship and I want all of the ancillary fame and all, all that comes with that uh, financially and otherwise. So I'm, I'm just trying to slink in the background, honestly, like I'm Jed Bushler. I'm not really, <laughs> you're just hoping somebody else screws up worse than you so that you don't get the ire that day. Yeah, let me be the 10th man. I'm not Scott Burrell. I'm not bringing my friends into the locker room trying to, like, get them to sign merchandise from MJ and that sort of thing. Like, that's just not my strategy. I'm definitely laying low in the cut and uh, avoiding MJ's wrath at all possibilities. Can I tell you why Scott Burrell is my favorite minor character in this entire documentary? <laughs> sure. Because so I put myself in this same, you know, thought process, mental exercise, and I think that... Um, I would have more of a tolerance for Jordan's leadership style than you would, but I would have a very hard time vocally challenging him like Steve Kerr did because if I realized that he was the best player on the court, and of course he would be, I would view him as an authority, especially if he was that famous, and I think I would just sort of take it just like you would take it from a demanding high school coach or you know any other level. It's like you know if they're yelling, you're listening. That's your job, right? So I think I would actually be putting myself in, like you're saying, a kind of a tough psychological spot where you're just kind of getting beaten down regularly, but I think that that would be my approach, and I would just take it for as long as I could take it. Scott Burrell's solution of basically just smiling through the pain of never, ever <laughs> letting it get to him. It's like, has this guy ever had a bad day in his entire life? If so, it's he never shows it. And it is so funny. This guy, Jordan is calling him every name in the book. He's saying that he's an alcoholic in front of cameras, right? Which is clearly making Scott Burrell uncomfortable. Uh, he's doing all these other things that I think really would provoke a reaction. And as you can see from Jordan's interview, he still laughs all these years later about the idea that he was never able to break Scott Burrell. It makes me think Scott Burrell might actually be the strongest mental competitor on those Bulls teams. Is that possible? Oh, it's 100% possible. Um, I, I loved when Jordan said he was he was literally trying to get Scott Burrell to fight him. And then he's like, it, but in a good way. It's like, what, what the hell does that mean? Why, like, why, you're a basketball player. Like, relax, please. I just, that that type of stuff is a little infuriating and in, 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 in a comical way almost. But it is awesome that Scott Burrell, like, yeah, he's just able to kind of put on a, a I'm sure he maybe the, you know, when Jordan was calling him an alcoholic, I wonder if that was just like a byproduct of the the, the mental and emotional torture that he went through as his teammate. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, it's uh, uh, Scott Burrell. Yes, he is the unsung hero of this documentary. No, oh, and he has to take the, the digs about go home and feed your cats with cat chow. I mean, just just withering insults from Michael Jordan. Oh, how did you even make a basket? Oh, one for seven. I mean, all this stuff, like, I don't know about you, but if I had a bad game, the last thing I want to have happen is the best player on the team be like, wow, one for seven. You really suck tonight. Like, that would really, really get to me. And somehow Scott Burrell is just smiling like you said, hey, I'm just going to bring in my buddies. They drove in from Connecticut. You know, let's all just sign some autographs. Like, ha, ha, ha. You know, we're all friends here. It just makes no sense. No, I – and kind of like I, I guess I want to transfer – uh, to just Jordan himself and the side of him that was so emotional in that doc in the interview where he's I think it's the end of episode seven where he basically breaks down discussing his own approach to leadership and right. why he was so intense and I mean I, I just it was I don't know how you felt about it I, I was frankly confused um 
I could not tell if it was due to regret or like overwhelming pride in how he behaved. Like, what what was your sense from that? Well, I mean, you're, you're talking about the speech where he starts off, winning has a price, leadership has a price. Then he goes yes, on to yes. say, hey, don't don't consider me a bad guy. You know, that's your opinion uh, because you've never won anything. And I was just, you know, so intensely uh, focused on winning that, um, look, you know, I never asked anybody to do things I wasn't willing to do. And he's kind of making the case that he leads by example. And then ultimately, his thesis is like, this is really all that mattered to me. And if you don't care as much as I do, I, you know, practically don't respect you is, is sort of, uh, you know, his general take. And he gets so worked up that he basically has to ask the cameras to stop and, and to take a break. It's amazing that this is the subject matter that triggers the emotional reaction, right? Other yes, than yes. the discussion of his father, there's basically nothing else that gets him in the same type of way, right? Um, and it's also the most introspective that we really get him. It's the most honest, genuine emotion. You contrast this with his answers to like gambling, uh, you know, or some of the other political controversies that we've talked about in previous weeks. This is the one that actually matters to him. So I think it was genuine. I'm not sure that I sense regret. If anything, I think he misses the fight, Michael. You know, I think that he loved the battle so much and it's been so long since he's really been able to experience that that kind of going back and really engaging with that mental place is hard for because, you know, like a lot of people who are in retirement, they realize, you know, quote unquote, the best days are behind them. And, uh, you know, those peak moments are, you know, only memories now. And I, I think that's what gets him kind of caught up in that emotion. And I also do think that there is a level of defensiveness too. this idea that he feels a little bit misunderstood that, I mean, we can all agree he's top point zero 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 one percent in terms of competitiveness, right? And to outsiders, it's hard to process. We just do not view the world the same way that he does. And he believes deep in his heart, and this is a look at his soul, that he's right. And he just feels misunderstood, like nobody else is on his level. And I actually think for high performers, whether it's athletes or artists, feeling misunderstood or misunder, uh, you know, underappreciated... Um, is like a universal feeling from those kinds of people, right? Um, and so, I, you know, geniuses always talk about that. It's like, oh, you know, the average person doesn't get me. I kind of feel like that's where he's going um, with some of those tears and some of that emotion. Yeah, I can totally relate. Um, yeah, I know. No, well, I, you're, you're carrying me on this podcast, <laughs> and it's like, look, yeah. you've got to kind of filter your complex ideas through me, and I can kind of explain them to the masses. And I, look, exactly, it's, it's a huge burden for you, and you know, I should respect that more, frankly. Having to simplify everything, exactly, it's tough, but we well, make do. What did um, Jay Z say? Double dumb down for the audience and triple my dollars, <laughs> something like that. Is that what you're? Is that what you're up to? Exactly. Um, I, I, I think what you just said is really interesting about him being misunderstood because I kind of disagree a little bit. I feel like, you know, when he I go back to when he talked about social activism and civil rights and the political stuff where he basically says uh, you can't please everybody. And he, he's totally at peace with that. Um, and so for him to have that approach to an issue that is, you know, seemingly one would think more important than one's own pathological competitiveness. I just, I, I, maybe that is what the big reveal is with him. And that's kind of just who he is. And that's fine. And he's just unlike everyone else. But from just kind of reading tea leaves and seeing his statements and just, I, I don't think he feels misunderstood, which is why I was just befuddled by his reaction to it and his emotion. And I, maybe he was like two glasses deep into the tequila at that point. I don't, I don't know, but, uh, it was, it confused me. I'm not going to lie. You know, one thing I should point out during my interview process for this, uh, the preview that I wrote about this, uh, series, mm -hmm. one of Jordan's, the members of his camp told me that like, he'll just kind of randomly break down like that, you know, like he is just kind of an emotional guy. Um, and we saw it during the Kobe Bryant speech. And he even said during that speech that he knew he was going to lose it. And in those circumstances, it's very understandable. Right. But of course the hall of fame speech, you know, brought the tears out too. Um, the crying so, Jordan meme. Right. Yeah. Right. So some people are just like that. Um, 
And maybe it's because, you know, when he is in that competitive mode, when we're used to seeing him on the court, he's in a completely different mind space, right? But like every time he's winning, the tears are out pretty regularly. And it's something that I always look for uh, after championships. Do guys cry or not? You know, like because certain ones mean more than others, right? Like LeBron cried after 2016. In, uh, you know, 2012, he's just dancing like a goofy kid on the bench, right? Uh, Kevin Durant, the first title, didn't cry um, in Golden State. And I, I often thought, you know, if he had won in Oklahoma City, uh, he's crying much like he was crying when he left the court um, after the 2012 finals, right? Like, it's just one of those things that you, you know, you can't really control which moments, you know, hit you hard. And I think, you know, also some people get a little bit softer in age and, and the tears come out more readily. So it, it could be that we're just completely overanalyzing uh, the emotions on this particular part. We, but- we, we are a thousand percent overanalyzing this. Uh, and like, I don't mean to sound like, oh, crying. He's a like, I'm not criticizing him for crying at all. That's it was just. No, but in the context of this documentary, it stands right. out because there's yeah. a lot of sensitive material and there's a lot of great moments and you know, moments of pride and or moments of weakness where, you know, like, if it was really regret, wouldn't he be crying about punching Steve Kerr and knowing that that's like, it's the only apology he delivers in this entire series, right? Like, he's not apologizing to Jerry Krause, even close, not Isaiah Thomas. (laughs) But you could tell he actually feels bad about punching Steve Kerr. He's kind of ashamed of it. And he does the thing with his fingers where he's like, I felt this small and he's holding them an inch apart. But yeah. he, he's enjoying telling that story. He's like, yeah, I punched him right in the face. Like, he's not crying, you know? So that's that's why I do think it's uh, it's probably the lasting stretch of this entire documentary. To me, if you had to boil the 10 hours down to two minutes, it's that speech, right? Yeah, I mean, I as just a fan and someone who's generally enjoyed it, that's what I want most from the documentary is that side of Jordan and... You know, I've found that, and I'm sure this this isn't like breaking news or particularly insightful, but the most revealing footage is not in those interviews. It's in the, you know, when he's captured doing things 20, 30, 40 years ago. And uh, like the footage of him after the, uh, when they clinched the first championship after he comes out of retirement against the Supersonics, and he's just on the floor of the locker room. And that was startling. Like, the, the audible noise of him weeping uncontrollably, I it was like, that was one of the most power. I've never seen that before. That was one of the most powerful moments for me in the whole documentary. Um, I, I personally view the, the whole, like... The, the Father's Day narrative a little artificial and a little prepackaged and how they kind of go from, you know, his explanation for Gary Payton, when Gary Payton uh, talks about how if he was co- covering him for every game, uh, maybe that finals would have been different. And Jordan's just like, I had other stuff on my mind. Like, I, I think that that is just a little... I don't know if that's like reality. I think that's a little revisionist, but um, to see him on the floor after that that championship was kind of that's like incredible footage, and that's that's him. That's who he is. No, he's sobbing, weeping, and his yeah. chest is heaving, and like people are like putting towels over him to kind of like shield him from the public, right? Because they're they're feeling such empathy for him. Um, no, it's it's crazy. I mean, I've I've seen a photo of that scene before. I've never heard the audio. And the video together, you know, in an interview this week, the director, Jason Hare, had mentioned that there was a few things in these two episodes that he was surprised Jordan allowed in. And I initially when I saw that, I was thinking, oh, maybe he's talking about like the, you know, the name calling of Burrell and everything else. And then I was like, you know, maybe he's talking about that scene. Right. Because that's so personal and so private. It's actually, you know, kind of incredible that, that Jordan would be willing to share that. Um, publicly, I, I'm just, you try to put yourself in his situation. Like anytime I've lost a family member and thankfully I still have both my parents, but the last thing I wanted to do was have a video of my reaction to it. Like, you know, like that's, it's very private and in grief, you know, maybe he's had time to, to process it. And, and mm-hmm. certainly there's a lot of pride with winning that title, but that scene was incredible. I want to double back to what you're talking about though, with, uh, Gary Payton in the 96 finals. Mm-hmm. Let me go the other way and, and argue the opposite. Is it possible Jordan intentionally or unintentionally tanked games four and five 
<laughs> so that they could wrap it up on Father's Day for the narrative. Is that possible? That is one of the crazier conspiracy of all the conspiracy theories floated <laughs> throughout this documentary. That is easily the most insane. Like I, 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 I was reading. There was an article. Um, I forget where that I was reading about it, and uh, I'm not really gonna uh, put too much credence in that one. I think you just kind of have to give credit to the Seattle Supersonics, and they played. Uh, they were a really good team and they played really well and Jordan shot like 36% in those last three games. So I think you got to give credit to, uh, I think Gary Payton won defensive player of the year that season too. So you got to give credit to uh, where it's due. And I mean, the the Supersonics were not just a complete washover where he could just turn. I mean, as we, it says at the beginning when Roy Williams is like, he could have turned it on and off whenever he wanted and he never turned it off. So I do not believe that that was the case at all. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, Peyton, his style of defense on Jordan was basically what you had to do. I mean, I always thought the best way to guard Jordan was to have somebody who was, um, you know, that could kind of get under him, right? And and that had the quickness to limit his, um, you know, his range of options, right? I think that if you had a bigger defender, a taller defender, or a slower defender, it was just over because he's going right by that guy and you're kind of just stuck, right? Yeah. but you also have to have a level of physicality to make him work. And at that stage of his career, like Peyton was right. That was a good strategy to deploy on him. It wasn't going to work every single night, but it would limit his efficiency. At the same time, I go back to like, not only did they win 72 games that, that year, but just how easily they won early in that series, right? Just like blowout wins. And it shows a lot of mental resolve for the Sonics not to fold in, in those circumstances. But I also wonder if whether it was Jordan or the or the Bulls too, just kind of taking their eye off the ball naturally. You know, getting up three zero in a series like that's just you know uh, a common thing. We actually saw the Warriors do it a few years ago against the Cavaliers, and you know they give up that crazy game in Cleveland where the, the Cavs are just hitting every single three pointer and you know spoiling the sweep. Um, you know, I think it was in two thousand seventeen. So you know I. I, I I kind of believe that theory a little bit. Like, I don't know if he's like, (laughs) I'm I'm not saying that he he tanked those games. I just think that there was, that was probably in the back of his mind. And he's just like, well, okay, we can kind of just settle this thing on Sunday. That'll be okay. You know, Um, you know how LeBron used to like have game one as a feel out game. You know, he used to always talk about that. He wouldn't bring his like full fastball in game one. I wonder if Jordan was just treating games four and five like feel-out games, you know? Just letting Gary Payton exhaust himself running around trying to play defense before they uh, took care of business in game six. Just a thought. I'm not saying it 100%. It's just, you know, been on my mind here for a while. Um, but I'm glad Gary Payton got his moment in the sun. And I love the the trash talking back and forth, right? Don't you think Jordan respected Payton's um, mouth? You know, just to eat to like, because sure. he brought his A game when he's watching that iPad. He's just like cracking up and laughing, and he knows he's he's kind of on the spot when he's watching that. It seemed like Peyton brought the best out of Jordan in a way that guys like Drexler um, didn't. Right? You know, we get one line from Jordan on Drexler, and then we get this great two minute scene of of Jordan on Peyton, just because of Peyton's personality and his brashness. I, it made me want a Gary Payton documentary. I'm not like I'm not even kidding. Like Gary Payton's, he's the what? He's probably the best trash talker who ever lived, and Jordan could definitely appreciate that. Uh, it also made me really want going forward. Uh, you know, the the Pacers Eastern Conference Finals that series in '98 has not been covered yet in this documentary series, but we're obviously going to get to it. And there was this clip. Uh, towards, I think it was the end of episode eight, where Reggie Miller says that he believes they were the better team. And I want so badly for someone to hand Michael Jordan an iPad with that clip rolling, and I want to see his reaction. That's just, that's what the Gary Payton thing did to me. It inspired me to to, to really look forward to hope, hopefully that that that's that is something that we get in no uh, i'm telling you man this has got to be a long week for reggie miller and carl malone just kind (laughs) of waiting for sunday night about what could happen what might happen hey guys what's up this is ben golliver with the open floor podcast here's a catch 22 how do you build credit when you don't have payment history to build on the industry has made it hard for people to understand how to take control of their credit but here's a quick take if you want to build credit your payment history goes a long way 
Many people rely on secured credit cards to build credit, but those can require hefty upfront deposits. Now there's a new way to build credit. Meet Self. Self's Credit Builder account lets you responsibly build credit with no credit check required to start. Choose a monthly payment plan that works for your budget. You build credit history with each on-time payment, your payments become savings in your name, and you get the principal back at the end, minus interest and fees. Credit history impacts major life decisions like car purchases, rental agreements, and home ownership. Self gets you on the path to positive credit history in three simple steps. Apply for a Credit Builder account online or through the app. Choose the amount and terms that fit your budget. Each on-time payment builds your credit history. Once your account is paid off, you have savings set aside, minus interest and fees, and a positive credit history to build on. Access your account online or through the easy-to-use mobile app in all 50 states. Your account is secure, it doesn't require a hard pull on your credit, and it puts savings in your name. Start building your credit history today with Self. Get started in just five minutes at self.inc slash floor. That's S-E-L-F dot I-N-C slash floor. Self.inc slash floor. You know, quickly to follow up on the Peyton part, we got a question from Thaddeus, and he wanted to, you know, build on this hypothetical that we're describing and say, do you think the outcome would have been different if Gary Payton had gotten to guard Michael Jordan throughout the 96 finals like he wanted rather than George Carl, um, you know, saving Gary Payton for offense through the first three games? Does that series um, have the feel of being more competitive if Payton had got his wish? And Thaddeus adds, I happen to think the Sonics would have stolen one of the first three games, but maybe they don't win four and five. So the result winds up being the same with Bulls and six. So, um, Michael, how how far are you willing to take your Gary Payton respect factor? Uh, if he's on Jordan the whole way, what does that series look like? I kind of agree with Thaddeus here. Like, I, I think it goes six regardless. Maybe the the individual outcomes of the games are a little bit different than what we saw. Um, but no, I mean, Jordan is going to figure it out. Like, that's the story of his career, if there's anything. When there was an obstacle, he overcame it. Uh, it two game sevens in the whole 90s run, and he won both of them. Like, I, it's, there's no, like, Gary Payton, all-time point guard, great player. That team had Sean Kemp. I have a, actually a question kind of related but like who did guard jordan in those first because i didn't i don't think they did they answer that question like for the first three games who was actually on him i think it was hersey hawkins and i also think that the sonics if i'm remembering this right nate mcmillan used to have a story about how he thought the sonics could have won that series uh but he got injured at some point during that playoff run if i'm not mistaken i feel like i remember like 10 years ago rolling my eyes at this alternate history that nate had concocted in his mind when he was coach of the blazers about how you know they were the biggest challenge for the bulls and you know if a few things had broken differently they could have knocked off the 72 win team Uh, this is going deep into the bowels of my memory michael but i'm pretty sure that's how it played out um you know that team was full of really good players like you mentioned we're just talking about the 96 bulls here and that's why i'm not trying to dismiss seattle out of hand but i just think you know, that was a squad from Chicago standpoint. You got Rodman on camp. You've got Pippen, you know, still basically at the height of his powers. And like you mentioned, Jordan kind of figuring things out. Um, I just don't see any way that series ever goes seven um, or ever, you know, winds up with a, you know, a Seattle upset thanks to Gary Payton's legendary defense. As fun as, uh, you know, that hypothetical and that trash talk would have been. Let me ask you, Michael, were there other favorite scenes of yours from these episodes? And then, you know, arguably more importantly, your loving wife. What is she taking away from uh, <laughs> from these two episodes? What is the casual fan's perspective on Michael Jordan, the complete psychopath? Uh, she felt really bad for BJ Armstrong. Did not know who BJ Armstrong was before the uh, documentary aired and then well i mean bj's got a sympathetic face right i mean the baby face where i think people were saying like he's the first player ever to be drafted out of elementary school um and you know still to this day he's one of the youngest looking people you'll ever see um did that play a factor or was she was it just yeah was it the stature factor or the the fact that he's on charlotte or or what no i mean there's all that and then there's just uh she was shocked when i told him told her that uh bj was an agent today either she could not 
comprehend that. Um, and well, uh, here's another hypothetical question for you. Sure. So BJ hits that shot late, and he does the fist pump, and he's kind of letting the Bulls bench know in the playoffs, and mm-hmm. he's so excited, right? And everybody knows, probably even BJ in that moment, that it's going to be all downhill from there, right? Like Jordan will come back and he will annihilate you. And, you know, Jordan mentions, oh, yeah, you know, BJ forgot what makes us tick and all that stuff. Do you think BJ actually forgot what made them tick or do you think that was his title, right? It's like, look, we're not going to beat the Bulls. So if I hit one shot, this is great. I'm going all in with it. Do you think there's any regret from BJ's side about how he handled that thing? Dude, absolutely not. No. I mean, first of all, he was wearing Jordans in that game, which I thought was really, really funny. Um, were they, no, auto- that, were they autographed? <laughs> <laughs> but like, I mean, he, you know, before we saw any of these episodes, BJ Armstrong is not someone I expected to get as much airtime as he did. So yeah, I mean, he's still living off that shot and he should live off that shot for the rest of his life. He... It's basically a game winner over Michael Jordan. What else do you need to know? And uh, I was, I, they didn't really touch on this in the doc, but one of the things that I remember about BJ Armstrong whenever his name comes up or I think about is how he uh, would buy these books and read books about how to deal with geniuses because this goes back to just, you know, the the whole thing about Michael Jordan's leadership style and his attitude towards his teammates. But BJ Armstrong had a very difficult time during that first repeat of being the point guard on those teams and dealing with the pressure and communicating with Jordan. And just, so that was another thing I had to, I was explaining to my wife and talking to her about was just like this guy, he's all, he's smiling now and he's laughing, but like, it was not like peaches and cream uh, for the in the early '90s when he was on the Bulls, necessarily. No, that is an absolutely excellent point, Michael. He was Mario Chalmers before Mario Chalmers, right? I mean, just kind of <laughs> the guy who is always getting the short end of the stick, surrounded by better players, asked to kind of step up in in big moments, but then also step back and have just a kind of a feel for when to just get out of the way. And because you're playing kind of a central role on offense, like you're going to get a lot of grief. And, you know, ultimately deep down, you realize as much faith as you have in yourself, you're not as good as these guys. And that is a a really, really tricky spot for these players to be in. Any other favorites here real quick before we shift gears to trying to predict what we're going to see next week? One more thing that's tangentially related to BJ Armstrong is the baseball bat cigar chomp before game two, I believe, where Jordan's in the locker room and he's doing these mini cuts in the locker room with the the cigar in his mouth. Uh, And I just thought that that was the most meme caliber footage of 2020 so far, and I'm not sure what's in second place. So I just wanted to shout that out. It was incredible. Um, when he's swinging that baseball bat, it does sort of feel like he's an executioner practicing <laughs> like the, the, the axe wielding. You know what I mean? It's so great. Yeah. Um, like he should be wearing a, like a black hood, like an all black uh, cloak. Uh, I mean, he just really does seem like the angel of death in that moment. And what about his philosophy of trash talking? That it's like not okay, basically, it's, or it's easy to talk trash when you're ahead, but a real man talks trash when he's when it's even score or behind. As far as I could tell, the scoreboard never mattered for Jordan when he was trash talking throughout his entire career. This guy was trash talking while he was leading the whole way, wasn't he? Yeah, I don't know about all that. Um, I mean, what's the fun in trash talk if you can't trash talk when you're ahead? That's like the best part of it uh it did seem like jordan's rules for trash talking were i get to trash talk and no one gets to say anything to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i think some of the other moments from these two episodes that i really loved uh i mean all the space jam stuff was pretty cool uh particularly just like those pickup games which i didn't know too much about before seeing them and uh, I just frankly wanted more of that footage. I've I've heard that there wasn't any more taken, which is a huge bummer. But like that's just really cool, and seeing like the bubble that was constructed for him with the weights and just like it, that just spoke so deeply to his ridiculous drive to just like crush the entire NBA once he returned to the league. I, I loved all of that so much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that would have been the ultimate writer's assignment, right? Like. 
can I sneak in? Can I get away to the Space Jam set and watch these pickup games and, you know, do the same kind of scouting that Jordan was doing? Um, I mean, that's the other thing is like, if you're Reggie Miller, it's like, well, do you accept the invite so that you can be part of like basketball history, right? Or do you decline the invite because you're worried that Jordan is going to like start understanding all these angles and, and, you know, flaws of your game that he could potentially exploit in the playoffs the following year. Or if you decline the invite, then you anger Jordan and now he comes for your neck for the entire rest of eternity. Like you have to show up. You don't really have a choice, but you're also kind of working against your own self-interest in that situation. Um, I also think it's funny that guys like Sean Bradley were just like around because they were gangly extras in the movie and then they get to play in the in the five on five games that's just a nice touch how many times did michael jordan dunk on sean bradley in those pickup games is like all i care about i'm also wondering like and i wonder about this with with even the like the pickup games that are played today like how what is the like the logistics for that like who invites a Reggie Miller or a Juwan Howard to these games. Like, I, I is MJ sending texts? Is he calling them? Is he having other people kind of reach out and get feelers for who's interested? Like, how does that all work? Well, it's '95, so there's no texts. Um, is there even emails in '95? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> these guys, point. these guys probably don't even have like easy access to email. My guess, it's agents. You know, uh, my guess is probably David Falk is putting out the word through the agent tree and. No, once guys show up the first time, it's like, come back tomorrow, we're doing it again. Come back tomorrow, we're doing it again, right? So um, I think that's probably how it played out. But I bet there was also like a, a level of competition to get into those games because probably just like today, a lot of guys are in LA during the summer anyways. Where else would you rather play? You know, and I, I do think that yeah. among his peers, like, you know, you're going if you're getting the invite, no matter what, right? And you're you're probably angling to try to get an invite if you even hear about it. It's pretty much the most exclusive club in town. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's um, the word of mouth is getting out on that one pretty quickly. Um, let's uh, shift gears here quickly to the upcoming episode. So we know that they have not covered the 97 title run, which includes the flu game um, against the Utah Jazz. Mm-hmm. And it includes... Uh, you know, uh, the fifth title, basically. And then we we know also they have not covered the the final two series of the 98 run, which includes that, you know, big showdown against the Pacers, sort of like, you know, the Bulls getting tested in a way that they really had never been tested um, at any other point uh, of this the second three-peat run. And then the second title against Utah 98, where Jordan hits the brush-off shot on Brian Russell and everything else. What do you want to see from these final two episodes? And Michael, I have not seen them. I've requested screeners. I've been denied. So I am just itching for, you know, uh, the, the the plot reveals here at the end. But what is it that you want to see most? Who do you want to see in these episodes? What are we looking forward to this weekend? First of all, welcome to the club of us low-level uh, the low-level members of the audience who have well, not seen look, any Michael, episodes ahead of time. You're going to have to make up your mind here. You're either a genius who nobody else can understand or you're a low-level <laughs> normie, okay? It's one or the other. You can't play both. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I I think number one for me, before I already mentioned it, I just want to see MJ react to Reggie Miller saying that the Pacers were a uh, superior team that year, which I think is just like, really 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 funny um i personally i i don't know how many people care about this but i want to see jordan magically transform into a self-reflective individual who's able to explain himself more transparently than he has i know that's not going to happen um i think like you mentioned the flu game I just wonder how many players from the utah jazz will speak for this and uh, I wonder how many were interviewed. I, I'm looking forward to seeing who participated and what they have to say. Like, is Brian Russell going to be, uh, you know, giving us the, the, the play-by-play from his memory of the final shot? Like, all that stuff would be really cool, I think. I don't really know. I don't think anyone does except, you know, those the few who have actually seen it. Um, 
who is interviewed. We know we got Reggie Miller, and that's cool. But like, I, who do you think? Like, is Carl Malone going to actually speak for this thing, or what do you what do you think about just the Utah Jazz and their whole role in all this? Well, I'm very excited for the Jazz final scenes. First of all, here's what I'm looking for. Number one, more than anything, I want Jordan to accuse the hotel of poisoning him. Uh, during the flu game right because there's all these different (laughs) theories about like what happened you know did he eat bad pizza whatever else i i really want a forthright honest take from jordan and even if it's revisionist like way after the fact um i want him coming out swinging on that can we get can we get the can we get the chef right from uh from that hotel that would be incredible that Let's would get be him great. A, uh, yeah sit down do an interview tell us what you served what were you doing that night that would be great and i would also like to hear in jordan's kind of own words when we saw him laboring in that game and i that's one situation where i don't think he was laying it on thick for the cameras i mentioned my my theory about the uh you know the 96 title and waiting for father's day and everything else i think that that was genuine exhaustion and we can all relate to it because i'm sure you've had Mm -hmm. that feeling when you've got the flu or whatever else it's just like even standing up is hard and that performance is ridiculous so i'm I'm hoping he's going to just take us through what he remembers as best he can it's probably a a fog at this point um because i i do think that's one of the standout moments that sometimes gets forgotten because it's not one particular shot or one particular dunk it's more of a complete effort uh, from a competitor. Um, So that's number one. Number two, what I'm really hoping for, and this is going to probably come back and bite me pretty hard by next week, Michael. Mm -hmm. What I'm really hoping for is for Jordan to vouch for Stockton. And you know that I consider Stockton the most (laughs) underrated player in the history of the NBA. Uh, I just want Jordan to just throw him a bone. Like he's gone after Peyton. He's gone after Drexler. He kind of dismissed Barkley. Like he obviously annihilated Isaiah Thomas. But there is something about Stockton, the scrawny little kid from uh, you know Eastern Washington who goes to Gonzaga prep, goes to Gonzaga, doesn't start as a full-time starter in the NBA until he's 25, and then winds up maximizing every piece of his uh, you know ability to be the NBA's all-time leader in assists and steals and, and taking a team to the finals twice. Jordan's got to be able to relate with that guy. And, you know, people would knock Stockton for being a little bit dirty, for being a little too competitive, for being a guy they didn't want to play against. I mean, even Gary Payton has come out and said that Stockton was just like a nightmare guy for him to cover, right? Um, I can't imagine John Stockton ever talked trash or got on Michael Jordan's bad side. And I hope that there's just some... In the interviews with Jordan about the Jazz, I hope he just kind of mocks the mailman a little bit. And that might be low-hanging fruit. But I do hope sure. he just throws in a little bit of love for John Stockton because I think that would be, um, you know, classy uh, from a uh, it, from a competitor of that time period. It's classy. It's also a terrific way to make Isaiah Thomas upset. So I can totally see MJ just spending 20 minutes talking about how <laughs> great John Stockton was and how he was the best possible point guard to be on the on the dream team and all that. Would yeah, that's like. That talk, talk about low hanging fruit. That's a great opportunity for Jordan to just needle his his former rival. Look, I don't care if there's collateral damage here. Okay, all I'm interested in is my pro Stockton agenda, and I just need <laughs> all I need is one line, Michael. I'm not asking for 20 minutes. I just need one line of validation for John Stockton. Um, in terms of who gets interviewed, I know he was the last interview Stockton was. Now I don't know if they were able to get it in before the coronavirus, but that was the planned last interview. Um, don't know on Malone. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with the Open Floor Podcast. A healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? Eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Well, maybe not so easy. But there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed that's a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com for the Memorial Day sale. 
So Brian Russell, though, had a back and forth. I don't know if you remember this a few years ago with Jordan, um, where basically there was like a challenging of a one-on-one game (laughs) and, you know, the feelings were still pretty raw. And, uh, you know, it all got prompted because Phil Jackson tweeted uh, that Jordan gave him a love tap or something like that. Um, So they need to break down the final shot, of course, in all its glory. I hope they spend 10 to 15 minutes on that. But, I, you know, I expect them to also rewind the tape and go back to Jordan, um, you know, pilfering the ball from Malone because that was a signature part of that uh, entire sequence as well. Um, sure. But I hope Brian Russell says it with his chest and is like, you know what? I would have blocked the shot, but Jordan pushed off and fouled me. I don't know what you want me to say. It was an offensive foul. They didn't call it because he's Jordan. And that's <laughs> That's what I want from Brian Russell, you know? No, that would be that would be stupendous. Um, I yeah, I mean, I want to real quick like the flu game isn't remembered like the the shot or that that push off that he had against Byron Russell, the, the one he had against the Cavs, um, any of the the you know the signature dunks or anything like that. But that game, I feel like, is his greatest performance. Like that is the most transcendent thing an NBA player might have ever done on a basketball court. Uh, it's we, again, we've all felt what it's like to have the flu and uh, it's incredibly physically and mentally draining. I can't even imagine, like I don't even want to sit up in bed when I have it. So uh, to play a basketball game, not only to get out on the court during the finals and run up and down but to have like like what was his number his numbers were like 37 points in like 40 something minutes like he was also excellent like i i that performance boggles the mind in a way that very like there's really no comparison there i don't i have nothing like that is so that game i hope really gets its just due you know i've been a little disappointed in how they've I understand that there's only 10 episodes or whatever, but they've kind of glossed over a lot of the individual playoff games and individual performances that have been, there's a lot, but they've just kind of gone over them and not even, I mean, like that, the magic series was just over in the blink of an eye (laughs) from 96 when it was like, they built it up because of the Nick Anderson steal and all that. And then they just, it's like the series starts and then the series is over and they're going to the finals. Um, so I hope that they give that flu game the treatment that it deserves because it is truly like uh, it's it just you can't even process his accomplishment in, in that in that game. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, there was a number of points in this documentary where I felt they went through the basketball stuff too fast. And there is actually a DVD set that's called NBA Dynasty Series uh, Chicago Bulls 1990s. I don't know if it's hit YouTube yet. And I saw it looks like it's pretty sold out or hard to find. On Amazon, the prices are just like crazy. It's like up to like 150 or 200 dollars for this thing. It's not that good, but um, this DVD set, if people can find it if they're interested, has full games, including the flu game, and it also has like one or two hour long documentaries about each of the title runs. And it's mostly focused on basketball. It's not focused on the behind the scenes stuff. I think it's an NBA entertainment product. But if you just want the basketball history and like to see the highlights and see the pivotal moments and everything else, mm-hmm. um, that is an awesome series for people to check out. And as an early plug, my newsletter next week for the Washington Post will be like, hey, here's a bunch more Jordan content. If you didn't get enough from the last dance, like here's what you should read. Here's what you should watch and everything else. So people can look for that. Um, on Monday, make sure to subscribe, go to my Twitter page and, uh, you know, find the link from there to subscribe. Of course it's free. All right, Michael, we are going to breeze through a couple final questions here from our listeners. They emailed openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. And these are just roundups of some previous discussions, uh, along the way. And we're going to start, um, actually with a guy named Blake. He writes, guys, thanks for offering a bright spot for me and countless others twice a week. It seriously means a lot. Blake, thank you very much for listening. He continues, as we all turn to the last dance, it seems the only mention we really get of Clyde Drexler is how Jordan is insulted by the comparison. And then he goes on to put on the greatest game, uh, one performance of all time with the six three-pointers. Blake says, I'm not challenging Jordan's greatness here. That was his moment, his series, and his era. But Clyde's numbers in that series were respectable, uh, somehow this rewind recency bias must be messing up the minds of whoever is doing the rank- rankings over at ESPN. 
because having Drexler below other notable wings like Reggie Miller, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce feels completely out of whack. Forget the numbers, the finals trips, the ring, the All-NBA teams. He was simply more of a top-shelf guy during his prime. Go watch the 1995 finals, and he's a downhill force for the entire four-game stretch. Ben, as a native of Oregon with considerable ranking experience, am I making sense? Blake, uh, this is not a homer statement by me. You are 100% right. Um, I didn't see how far down that list that he was. Um but there's no explanation for it. I mean, I think that the small market thing hits Clyde. The nice guy thing hits Clyde. His prime is overlapping with Jordan uh, pretty directly. So that is uh, counting against him from a historical standpoint. Clyde could really, really play. He led lots of winning teams. Great person and personality, um, you know, from a leadership perspective. I, I do think uh, some people would nitpick on that, um, you know, some of the Blazers writers and say, you know, occasionally he got to be a little bit aloof uh, and things of that nature. But um, bottom line, it was no drama, you know, off the court from him, uh, a true gentleman. And then you you look, he goes to Houston, uh, you know, back to the site of where he went to college and uh, teams up with Akeem Olajuwon again, and they produce the title. So to me, uh, he's got to be above uh, the Reggie Miller's um, and even the Ray Allens of the world, I, I think that uh, you know Clyde gets into that conversation of underrated grades. I have a question for you that I, I, that might explain this, and this is just a theory of mine. But do you think that maybe Clyde Drexler's uh, announcing slash broadcasting career has? done a little bit of damage to his his legacy and his longstanding reputation well what is it about it that you're nitpicking is it he's too homer on behalf of houston I, I i don't think he's very good at it uh for one um and he's just very anti you know uh, he, he is a humongous homer. He's had moments of just being not comprehensive of analytics, which is ironic given that he's broadcasting for the Houston Rockets. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not here to like bash Clyde Drexler, even though like I, I don't think necessarily that he was all that much better than Ray Allen or Paul Pierce. But like, well, here's uh, the thing with Clyde. I mean, he's a little bit like magic on Twitter. Where he, sure, yeah. he is just, you know, there's there's some obvious statements being made and he, he goes to them regularly. He's not trying to anger anyone. He's not trying to, he's like the anti-Barkley. Like he does not want to start fights. That's not who his nature is at all. He's just kind of a, a nice guy, a gentleman. Like I said, he's also kind of down for whatever. Like, you know, he was mixed up with the big three there for a while. <laughs> he's had some interesting sponsorship opportunities, uh, you know, during his retirement career. Um, I, I get the sense maybe he has a hard time saying no to people, which, you know, I think that's actually a little bit endearing. He's always been incredibly cordial and polite. I remember one time when I was first blogging, Michael, um, I somehow got an interview set up with him through a sponsor. And the only time that they could do it was like 8 a.m. Eastern. And we got onto the call and I was in Portland. And so it was 5 a.m. my time. And Clyde's mm-hmm. like, you woke up at 5 a.m. to talk to me? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, that was his genuine answer. <laughs> I always stuck with it. I just thought that was so funny. Um, you know, it's like, come on, Clyde. Like, we do this interview any time of the week. We do it on the moon. You know, obviously, I, w- I want to talk to you. And um, he was, uh, you know, just, you know, like I said, I think um, he wasn't that the self-promoter. You know, he wasn't the big personality even though his game did a lot of talking, he was a spectacular dunker and everything else, had a lot of all-star appearances, dunk contest uh, appearances and everything else. Um, he just wasn't as visible as, as some of the other guys who were on that list. And certainly compared to modern guys like Paul Pierce and Ray Allen, he's just not on TV nearly as much as those guys. That holds him back. All right, Peter's got a little bit of a take for you, Michael. Here it comes. He says, I'm tired of the Jordan worship. Well, Sorry, Peter. We just did another 45 minutes of it for you. <laughs> Peter is no longer listening. Uh, Peter, hopefully you're still with us. He says, people act like Jordan won every game by himself every year. But who did Jordan beat that had better support than Jordan's stacked 90s rosters? If you take away Jordan and the best player from his 90s opponents, the Bulls win every matchup. Jordan was a bully that picked on people who wouldn't defend themselves and beat teams with lesser supporting casts. Change my mind. Peter... <laughs> I actually think that 92 finals is a great example of that. That Blazers team had a a great chemistry, a lot of depth, 
and uh, just great cohesion and, and fit. I think if you take Jordan and Drexler out of that series, I think the gap between Jordan over Drexler to find that series, you take them both off. I think Portland actually has a, a really good chance of, of congealing without Clyde and, and winning. Um, and, you know, there's some other teams that you could possibly make that case for uh, that he played against. Although your point on the kind of the reloaded Bulls, that second three-peat with Rodman and Kukoc, I mean, there was a lot of talent on hand in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we need to really defend Jordan too much here, do we? Like, he... I, I, I think whenever anyone makes the case that LeBron is better than Michael Jordan, they look at the relative competition and how LeBron had to go against so many different, you know, these mini dynasties in San Antonio, the Golden State Warriors, like he, there was a lot of forces in his way throughout his career. The Boston Celtics, they got the big three that kind of thwarted him at the beginning of the decade. Um, I mean, Jordan just never really had to, to deal with that to the same degree. That said, like he went up against Hall of Famers, and he won every single time. Like Carl Malone, John Stockton, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing. Um, these are all timers. Clyde Drexler is a ten-time All Star who went to five All NBA teams. Like, and he won a title. Like he's he was on the dream team. Like it's just he beat Magic Johnson in his first finals. Like I I don't think that uh, that he, the 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 level of the competition just wasn't. Uh, particularly uh, impressive. Like, I don't think that that's a fair uh, yeah. argument I mean, to make. To boil this down, they're not plumbers is what you're saying. And I agree. I mean, he beat a lot of really good guys and a lot of those guys would have enhanced reputations if they mm-hmm. didn't have to play against Jordan. And a lot of Jordan's teammates would be nobodies if they didn't get to play with him. And I think that's an important part uh, in terms of trying to change our emailer's mind like he requested. Michael, we got a couple quick follow-ups here on quitters, okay? So give me your your quick takes <laughs> on uh, the, the biggest quitters in NBA history. Of course, you ran down some excellent candidates on the first episode from this week. People should go back and listen to that podcast. Michael, the, the research you did on some of those names just blew my mind. Um, you covered all generations. Uh, but of course, we didn't get everybody. Kerry writes, the best I could come up with for my beloved Timberwolves is Stefan Marbury. After one year with the Wolves, he demanded out. He and KG were buddies, and they could have been something for a long time. Kerry, it's a good one. Michael, it does seem to be a pattern of people wanting out of Minnesota. And here's here's my question for you. How many years more of global warming do we have to go before NBA players no longer are trying to ask their way out of Minnesota? And remember, this is a place that calls itself the land of 10,000 lakes which by my estimation is basically the best defining characteristic that you could have as a state. And nothing really beats a lake, let alone 10,000 of them. Um, The snow is rough. I think the snow gets to people, the long winters get to people. By 2040 or 2045, maybe you can consult Greta on this one, um, will Minnesota be a prime destination for NBA players? You know, I don't think so. And uh, uh, Steph Marbury actually recently spoke about this, going back to his decision to leave. And he basically says that, uh, uh, you know, Glenn Taylor offered a seven-year contract or whatever it was to stay in Minnesota. And uh, he did not want to because, uh, I'm, I'm like quoting him here, there was 6% black people in Minnesota and compared to the melting pot communities that he'd previously been exposed to growing up in New York, like he just could not deal with that. So I, I mean, I'm not sure I I won't call if that's the legitimate reason, there's probably a lot of other factors that went into him demanding a trade and wanting out. Uh, There was, you know, reports early on of jealousy between Garnett and Marbury after Garnett signs that massive contract and the rules kind of change a little bit on him. But, uh, yeah, I can't blame Marbury for wanting out of Minnesota. I'm sorry, I just I just can't do it. I wish really badly I, I hear you that, on that he he stayed, but yeah, I can't do it. I hear you on that, and I think it goes it gets left unsaid by a lot of players. Minnesota is not the only market that has that issue, um, and you know sometimes 
you know, it, it winds up creating a resentment from fan bases that are mostly white when that's how things play out. But you got to understand it from the player's perspective. Um, so that's uh, that's good for him to put that out in the public. Um, Kevin writes, guys, do my ears deceive me? Did you really just talk about the legendary quitting of Andrew Bynum and not mention <laughs> how his stint in Cleveland ended when he would shoot literally every time he touched the basketball? He famously spent a practice throwing up shots from half court because he, well, it's pretty unclear why other than he was just being Andrew Bynum. I'm sure others have already chimed in on this, but that week or two before he disappeared from Cleveland was mind-blowing. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. This is why you're going to be the fact-checkers for our forthcoming books if we ever write them, uh, Michael, because this was a, a great one that slipped through the cracks, right? Um, when I read this email, I was just ashamed of myself for not remembering this. It wasn't like this was 20 years ago either. You, you um, were like Jordan after he punched Kerr. You're just feeling just this small with your fingers yeah, exactly. an inch apart. <laughs> Exactly. Now I, I tore the the mic out of my ear and I had to stand up and end the interview. That's basically how I felt. Break. Um, yeah. Exactly. Uh, no. I mean, there's th- this is a great point by Kevin uh, Andrew Bynum. Man, like the end of his career. We we literally we broke down, <laughs> we broke down how he quit on the Lakers. We broke down how he quit on the Philadelphia 76ers before playing a single game. And I, now we're breaking down how he quit on the Cleveland Cavaliers. The trifecta. Uh, he hit the you know hit for this almost hit for the cycle really. Um, last one we've got Ryan from Toronto. He says I have a big quitter for you guys. His name is Demar Derozan. As a Raptor, Derozan was notorious for disappearing in the playoffs when the pressure was on. He was nowhere to be found. In Game Four of the second round of the 2018 playoffs versus LeBron's Cavs. He was physically nowhere to be found. Why? Because he got himself kicked out of the game. The Raptors had just been crushed and tormented by the Cavs for three and a half games. And finally, in the third quarter of game four, DeRozan just snapped and took out Jordan Clarkson on a layup. Flagrant two, he hit the showers. And that was the last time DeRozan wore a Raptors jersey. Ryan, thank you for that uh, nomination, Michael. That game occurred after basically a three-year war between myself and the Raptors fans over DeMar DeRozan's playoff abilities. And as it happened, as I was being proven completely correct in that moment, um, it was the classic case of like, well, I'm right, but this doesn't feel very good because it was like watching a guy's career just basically blow up uh, in, in his face. And... It, you know, it was unacceptable to me, especially from a guy who's supposed to be the leader. I mean, he definitely went the same route as a Bynum or a Dwight Howard losing his composure and just checking out early. Um, you know, there was also some moments in that series where Dwayne Casey was sort of forced to bench him, uh, which got mm-hmm. awkward at times and contributed to his frustration. Um, ultimately, after that game, I basically demanded that he be traded for pennies on the dollar just to get him out, start fresh. Um, that was sort of my my take coming out of that. Little did I know that pennies on the dollar was going to be Kawhi Leonard. Um, <laughs> One of the best players in the league. Right. Uh, so that wound up working out okay for Toronto. But of course, I think most Raptors fans are willing to forgive that ugly exit from DeMar because of the years of goodwill and good service to that organization. And I will never forget this. I mean, during last year's finals, I went up to the birthplace of James Naismith uh, super dorky basketball road trip just for a story that I was writing about. It's called Almont, this small little community up in the middle of nowhere, Ontario. And I ran into four middle-aged women who were doing like a kind of like, not a bachelorette's weekend, but like a ladies weekend, right? Where they're just going around shopping in these cutesy little stores, you know, buying scented candles and that kind of stuff, you know, real cool lady stuff. And um, that sounded really demeaning by me, but you, you get what I'm saying. Um, while <laughs> I was... While I was there, they were like, what are you doing here? Because they could just kind of tell that, uh, you know, I was up to something. And I was like, well, I'm doing this story about the Raptors and everything else. They're about to win the title. And one of the ladies was like, make sure you mention DeMar DeRozan started all of this. My son is a huge Raptors fan now only because of DeMar DeRozan. He's got five copies of his jersey. We drove six hours round trip to go see a Raptors game for his birthday through the snow like two years ago. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that that one anecdote speaks for the entire country, but I kind of think it does. I think that's his role there. So we're going to let DeMar off the hook 
um, even though I won that round. Are you also Ryan from Toronto, Ben? No. Did you write? Did you write this email? Be no. honest. I did not write this email. I was impressed, frankly, because um, you know the Raptors fans who did turn on DeRozan, we did not hear from them nearly as often on this show as the true believers who were willing to believe that you know DeRozan was going to carry the Raptors past the uh, you know the LeBron James and the Cavaliers. Unfortunately, it did not work out for them that year. Um, but, uh, you know, it worked out for them in general, didn't it? I mean, I, I think that uh, they moved on fairly quickly. That series was just one of the most, the, the 2018 oh, yeah. series. It was like... All time, That was right? torture. Yeah, no, but like, I don't know if you remember, like, game one, um, I, was it Jonas Valanciunas who had like a bunny at the end? Because they lose by one point, and they're up most of the game and i think Jonas valanciunas like screws up a layup or something that would have been the go-ahead and they would have won and then once they lose that it was just like the floodgates and that was the whole series and then there was that shot that lebron hit that was like going to his left that runner but um wasn't he like taunting them at various points too with like dancing on the basketball i feel like lebron was like kind of rubbing it in their face like quite a bit as well he was a walking extinction level event in that series. He oh, was incredible. Yeah. This was when they called Lebronto, right? <laughs> Which was just like the most disrespectful nickname of all time. I felt so bad for them. Look, it all worked out for the Raptors. They won the title sure. the very yep. next year, and they're not looking back, except for Ryan, who needed to get his shots in. And I respect it, Ryan. Congratulations. <laughs> hey, Michael, on that note, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. And guys, I want to call on you. Please go to Apple Podcasts, find our page by searching for Open Floor. It's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Oliver. On Twitter at Ben Golliver. I've got a piece with Kevin Durant this week on the Washington Post. Be sure to check that out. He talks about his early childhood influences. He's got a new film out about uh, basketball in Prince George's County. All sorts of other good stuff. He talks about his coronavirus uh, scare and everything else. So be sure to dig into that. Uh, Michael, uh, until next week when we can double back on episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance. We're finally at the end of the marathon of jordan worship as some of our emails might put it we're looking forward to a little bit of stockton worship as well you know cross our fingers until then i will talk to you talk soon man. Yeah.